faithful in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'll be preaching from the gospel today. So if you recall, that's uh, John 8, beginning in verse 46. And feel free to turn there in the Pew Bibles if you'd like, because I'm going to kind of go through this verse by verse. There is a well-known psychological phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive, of course, referring to the mind. And as our music experts could no doubt explain, dissonance is when you, when you try to put two things together that just don't go together. It's when you try to put two notes together that don't harmonize or those sorts of things, you get dissonance. And so cognitive dissonance is a phenomenon where people try to hold two beliefs at the same time that just don't work with each other. And it operates on the mind something like a pebble in your shoe. It's something you can't really accept, and yet it's something you can't really forget. So the, you know, what, you know, a famous example or an, uh, a typical example, guys like a five-pack-a-day smoker, unfiltered cigarettes, like really unhealthy habit, and you go to him and you say, you know, this is really an unhealthy habit. You really ha are increasing your chances of, of having lung cancers and all sorts of other diseases exponentially. You know, do you realize that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I realize that. Do you want those things to happen? Do you feel like it's, a, it's an acceptable risk to have this habit and have the risks of those things? Like, no, no, I really want those things to happen. So why do you keep doing it? Um, the, the belief that you know, cigarettes are good and something I want to do and the belief that they're a dangerous thing and it's an unacceptable risk, those two beliefs just try to coexist in the same mind and they're dissonant, right? They can't really be compatible with each other, but he, he doesn't, isn't going to commit to getting rid of one or the, one or the other. Um, and one of the things that if you look at the way our culture treats our Lord Jesus, I think there's a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance. Uh, regarding Jesus. People don't really want to reject Jesus. They, they are not comfortable with saying that he was a bad guy or, or somebody from history who's unimportant, but they won't really accept him on his own terms either. And so when we're, you're in a state of cognitive dissonance, there's a tendency to rationalize, to try to come up with some sort of um, weird way of making the two beliefs that you have work together, even though they don't work together. And our culture's attempt to rationalize its feelings about Jesus lead to the creation of something I'm going to call a domesticated Jesus. So our culture can't really deal with Jesus as he is. They don't know what to do with him. They can't get rid of him. They like him too much to really get rid of him, to say, like, no, we're going to just um, reject him the way that we would reject um, an evil person. But it won't accept him for who he is either. And so what they try to do is come up with a, a new version of Jesus, one that's more to their liking and sort of minimizes the cognitive dissonance that they feel. But as we look closer at this gospel reading today, we're going to see that that's just not, a, that the gospels don't give us that option. The gospels do not give us the option of accepting our culture's domesticated Jesus. The gospels only give us the option of going forward and accepting Jesus as Lord, or they give us the option of going backwards and rejecting him as an evil as an evil and wicked man. There's no third option that the Gospels are going to give us. And so C.S. Lewis, the famous uh, English apologist, 
um, summarized this with something he called the trilemma. So a dilemma is when you have a choice between two things. A trilemma is when you have a choice between three things. And, Jesus, and uh, according to C.S. Lewis, Jesus presents us with a trilemma. There's just three things that we can believe about Jesus consistently. We can believe that he is, in fact, Lord, and we owe him our faith and obedience. We can dismiss Jesus as one of the worst madmen in history. Or we can dismiss him as a liar and a charlatan of a magnitude that would make him one of the most wicked men in history. Those are the options. So how do, let's look closer at this gospel. How does the gospel only give us those options? Well, the context of John 8, Jesus is having one of his big showdowns with the Pharisees. In John's gospel, they're referred to here as the Jews, but these are people that St. Matthew would call Pharisees. These are the religious experts. Um, they're a certain sect within Judaism. They had very strict beliefs and practices. Um, so he's having one of his big verbal confrontations with them, and they're going back and forth. And they're trying to argue on the basis of the covenant with Abraham that they are, they're fine with God right now. They don't need Jesus. And Jesus is pressing for the case that, no, you may have that covenantal identity, and you may think that's enough to save you, but it's not. You have to go forward and accept me as God's Messiah, or you don't have any hope. So in the context of this verbal dispute, in verse 46, Jesus says something that should um, absolutely shock us um, if we are at all inclined towards that domesticated Jesus view. Because uh, Jesus says in verse 46, which of you convinceth me of sin? Does that, does that statement sound astonishing at all? I, I, I mean, it should coming from any mere human being, right? Because that's, that's the nature of this domesticated Jesus. He's a good man. He's got a lot of good moral teachings. He went about helping people. He snubbed his nose at, at um, religious authorities that were um, corrupt and, and uh, were practicing hypocrisy. You know, that's the Jesus that they like. But a Jesus that can say, I'm sinless? What mere human teacher could possibly make this claim that nobody, nobody can convict me of sin? I am absolutely sinless. Moses sinned. Moses was a great man. He was a great prophet. He was greater than I am. But he sinned. That's why he couldn't enter the promised land. Abraham sinned. He and Sarah, when the, when the promise got to be too long in coming, they tried to make the promise happen on their own through uh, Hagar, the, uh, the maidservant. Um... Other great religious figures, the more, the greater they were, the more they were willing to acknowledge their own sinfulness. The, the wisest men are usually the most ready to admit their faults. Uh, the Buddha was a great moral teacher, um, very interesting figure from history, had a lot, of, a lot of great stuff to say. But even he acknowledged that he had led a life of self-indulgence and um, basically sin and delusion in his early life. He came to enlightenment only later in life. Um, earlier on, he, he definitely lived a sinful life of self-indulgence. Even the Quran um, has a chapter in which Muhammad is specifically rebuked for showing favoritism to the rich over the poor. 
There's a, speci- there's a specific surah of the Quran where God speaks to Muhammad and says, you've shown favoritism to the rich over the weak and the blind. And mo- most Orthodox Muslims will accept the idea that Muhammad, like you, like you or I are, was a sinner. The Quran also teaches Jesus' sinlessness, though, interestingly. So we see all throughout the great moral teachers of the world that the, the, the better they are, the wiser they are, the more they're willing to admit their faults, the less they're willing to disguise them or conceal them. And yet Jesus says nobody can convict him of sin. He's utterly sinless. What are we going to do with that? It doesn't fit into our view of the domesticated Jesus. He's saying he's fundamentally different from any teacher that has come up to that point in time. So, we get a a further statement in verse 47 um, that adds further qualifications to who can come to Jesus. He says in verse 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. There are certain qualifications that have to exist before we can accept God's message. And we cannot prepare ourselves to do it. In our own power and in our own strength and through our own will, we are not capable of coming to God and truly desiring the things that God desires. There is an absolute necessity for a new birth. And just like you couldn't make yourself be born the first time, you can't make yourself be born the second time. God has to reach out to to us and he has to make us be born again before we can accept the message from God, before we can accept Jesus. As long as we try to look on Jesus with only our own eyes, we won't see everything that's there. We need a vision that only God can give us to accept Jesus for who he truly is. What is the response of the, of the Pharisees to these statements? They respond with uh, malicious insults and abuse. They say Jesus is a Samaritan. They say he's uh, demon-possessed. You see, it's interesting. In Jesus' life, in the Gospels, we never see anybody trying to put forth a domesticated Jesus. We don't see people in the Gospels saying, oh, you know, this is a good guy. He's got some good teachings, you know. I respect him a lot, but I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily accepting him as Lord, but, you know, he's a good guy, good rabbi, got some good teachings. That's never an option available to people in the Gospels. People either move forward to become his disciples and acknowledge him as Lord, or they reject him, insult him, rebuke him, even seek to kill him. Why doesn't anybody take the middle ground if if that were an option? If if they were an option to take this domesticated Jesus, why doesn't anybody just do that? It seems easier. Well, it's because the person in front of them was a real living being, a real living man, not an idea. They didn't have the option of reducing him to proportions that were more manageable for them to accept. No, Jesus confronted them with who he was. And that's why those who would not follow him had no choice but to violently and maliciously reject him. Jesus goes on in verse 51 through 55 to make further radical claims. He makes um, claims to being Lord 
of death, to being beyond death, to being a victor over death. And again, as the Pharisees point out, who can say that? The prophets are dead. We know where their tombs are. We know that Muhammad died. We know that Buddha died. Some people think they even know where the tombs are. There's only one tomb we can point to of a great man in history that's empty. No one can find, no one can find the body that's supposed to be there. There's an excellent work um, by a theologian, N.T. Wright, Anglican theologian, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And it deals with the question of the Easter tomb as a purely historical question. It does not propose to decide the question theologically. It does not propose to presuppose that the tomb, of course, the tomb must have been empty because Jesus was God. N.T. Wright is saying, let's just examine this as purely a historical question. What is the most reasonable explanation for the stories that we have about the Easter day? And N.T. Wright concludes that in a sober historical analysis, just looking at the way a historian would look at any other question, the most reasonable explanation is that tomb was indeed empty on Easter day. There doesn't seem to be any other reasonable way to account for the stories that circulated after Jesus' death and purported resurrection. To try to explain it away as a hoax just doesn't work on a historical level. It just doesn't make sense as a historical thesis. It's, it's anachronistic to think that a hoax of that scale and nature and using the type of literary sources that were in use at the time could really be pulled off the way that skeptics try to claim. As a pure matter of historical fact, the most reasonable explanation is that that tomb was indeed empty. And uh, uh, of who else can we say that in history? Nobody. So this is an absolutely radical and unique claim that Jesus is making for himself, that he is Lord even of death, and that he gives the power to overcome death to those who follow him and believe on him. Just as Paul says that resurrection of Jesus is a surety, it's a down payment on the fact that God is Lord of our deaths as well and has the power to raise us from the dead. In verses 56 and 57, um, Jesus makes uh, a comment that's actually pretty important to understand for understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Unfortunately, there has um, arisen this idea that uh, there's some kind of fundamental difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, God tried the Old Covenant. Uh, it was a covenant based on works. Um, let's see if they can earn their salvation. Um, like a little experiment, we're going like, to just set everything going and see what happens. And oops, it didn't work. So, hmm, plan B. We'll, we'll have the plan B be salvation by grace. And that's why we have to send Jesus. The first one didn't work. No, it's, it's absolutely absurd, right? The covenants are not at cross purposes with each other. Both the old covenant and the new covenant were covenants of grace that promised salvation beyond anybody's ability to merit it or deserve it or earn it for themselves. And both covenants look towards Jesus as the one who would be the perfect sacrifice and fulfill those covenants. Abraham was not looking for different promises than Paul. Abraham was not looking for different promises than Jesus' apostles and disciples. They were looking towards the same promises. Did Abraham get to see it as clearly as Jesus' disciples? Surely not. He had to anticipate it. These things were still shadowy and mysterious to him, no doubt. 
But he did indeed look forward to Jesus as the one who would fulfill the covenant, as the one who would perform that perfect sacrifice that would enable men to be reconciled with God. And indeed, Jesus' sacrifice was effective for the Old Testament patriarchs in a prospective type of faith. They had faith, and they didn't know exactly in what, they didn't know exactly how it would be fulfilled, but they knew that they were looking forward to something that would be the fulfillment of the covenant. And that was Jesus and his sacrifice and his perfect obedience. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are not at cross purposes. As the Anglican 39 article says, it is not true that the old patriarchs looked for merely worldly promises. They were just looking for a kingdom on earth, not a heavenly kingdom. No, the old patriarchs were looking for the same thing as the apostles. They were looking for a heavenly kingdom with God. But of all the claims that Jesus makes in this passage, the one in verse 58 has to take the cake. If you think the first couple were hard to swallow, <laughs> I've, got a, I've got another thing coming for you. Um, if you think his sinlessness, his perfection, is a radical idea, if you think the idea that he is Lord even of death is a radical idea, we're about to get a real doozy here. The Jews, the, the Pharisees, want to know how it's possible that he could know Abraham or that Abraham could anticipate him. And in verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. What a gloriously confounded sentence. God is so surpasses our understandings that even grammar seems to break down when he begins to explain who he is. We would have... We would have anticipated, and in fact, it would be hard enough to believe if he had said, before Abraham was, I was. That's hard to accept. That's hard to accept, but it's not this weird, right? The idea that Jesus had merely pre-existed his earthly form, hard to accept, right? If someone comes to you and says, um, this is my earthly corporeal form, but I've actually existed for like forever, you'd be a little bit skeptical. I don't think you'd take up stones to try to stone them. And I don't think the Jews would have either if, that, if they thought that was all he was saying. If they thought all that Jesus was claiming for himself is that he pre-existed his, his, his human form, they would have said, okay, that's ridiculous. And they would have went their way. But no, look what they do. They pick up stones to stone him. What law had he broken? There's, you know, there's only certain infractions under the, the law of Moses that demand the death penalty, that demand stoning. Which of them had he done? Had he murdered anybody? Had he committed adultery? I mean, surely not. Surely these things can't be in view. What, what could he possibly have done that would have inspired them to pick up stones and want to stone him to death? They thought he had uttered blasphemy. How? They saw, they recognized that Jesus was claiming to be none other than the voice that spoke to Moses from the burning bush, that he was claiming to be none other than God himself in human form. That's why they were inspired to take up stones and try to stone him to death. Not because they thought he had said something ridiculous that they didn't believe, but they thought he had said something outright blasphemous. In my apartment building where I live, um, we used to have a gentleman who was a Jehovah's Witness, really nice man, had a lot of really good conversations with him about uh, Christianity and about um, the Orthodox Christian belief versus the, uh, the errors of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
And um, he was an interesting guy. He was very knowledgeable. And he happened to have a set of the scriptures of, the, I think it was the New Testament. And he had um, the Jehovah's Witness translation uh, next to the original Greek. So he, he, could, he could flip back and forth between looking at the original Greek or looking at the, at the Jehovah's Witness translation. And um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you're not familiar with them, they do not accept the idea that Jesus was God incarnate, uh, God in the flesh. They think he was divine. They're willing to accept that he pre-existed his, his corporeal existence, that he was maybe like some kind of angel um, for, a, for you know, eons and eons. But God himself, no. And it's very interesting. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness translation deliberately alters the, the translation of, of this verse. Instead of having Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am, in their translation it says, before Abraham was, I was. And I remember having this conversation with this gentleman. I said, if you know any Greek at all, you have to know the, the verb here is present tense. Okay? He's not saying before Abraham was, I was. He's saying before Abraham was, I am. That's a, that's a, a deliberately weird statement that's trying to draw your attention to something. And your translation just plain gets it wrong. That's, that's, just, that's just not what it says. And, um, you know, I don't know if I convinced him, but we, we had a fairly interesting conversation back and forth. But this I am, why would saying I am be a claim to divinity? Well, if you remember the story of, of Moses and, and, the, and the burning bush, um, Moses wants to know what's the name of this God that he's going to report back to the Israelites on. W which God am I going to say spoke to me out of this burning bush? Because, you know, he's in a pagan environment. There's many gods people believe existed. He needs a name for this particular God. And um, God says from the burning bush, tell them I am sent you. I am is the name that he chooses for himself in that moment. And uh, many people think that's actually the basis for the name Yahweh. Yahweh is actually just a slightly altered version of the Hebrew words for, for I am. And I would say this passage here is a pretty strong testimony in favor of that interpretation. Um, so why? Why, though? Why, the, why would that be the name for God? There are, there are you know, super deep theological mysteries there that we could probably spend a long amount of time on. But let's just notice one thing, and that's the weirdness of the grammar is telling us something about, that's metaphysically weird that's weird about the sort of um, theology of this verse. Because to say before Abraham was, I am, is to say my relationship to time is totally different from anything you've ever seen before. It's totally different from any created being. Because created beings, we're created beings in time, right? We have a beginning in a sort of timeline in our existence you know, persist at this point, and then maybe like there's death here, and then maybe there's disembodied existence after that point, but we're beings in time, right? And we're before each other or after each other, we come in history. But God, if God is the author of time, think about that for a moment. If God is the author of time, he has to relate to time in a completely different way. God can't be the creator of time and also a being in time. In some sense, God's being has to transcend time entirely. It has to go beyond anything that we can think of as just sequential moments. So St. Augustine famously explained this by saying that for God, time is not a sequence of moments the way it is for you or I, for you or me. For God, 
Time is a single moment of simultaneity in which all individual moments of time are experienced at once. Do I know how that works? No. <laughs> it's one way to make sense of it, though, the idea that God can be the author of time and transcend time, but still interact with time, right? Like, that's, 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 that's the difficult thing to explain. But in, in, Jesus's, in, in what Jesus says here, he's claiming to be divinity because he's claiming to be outside of the whole created order. Anything you can look at in creation, anything that's a part of this temporal world that exists in time, he says, I'm not a part of that. The way I relate to the entire flow of history and the entire flow of time is fundamentally different from any created being because I'm not a created being. That's fundamentally the claim here. This, this, is, this is the claim to divinity, and this is why they pick up stones to stone him to death. He didn't give them the option of accepting a domesticated Jesus. He was the real, wild, feral, dangerous Jesus, the one you see out in the wild. And when you confront that Jesus, you've got two options. You can either go forward and accept him as Lord and serve him, or you can look for something to pick up and attack him with. Those are the only options we're given. There are many people who probably think that they'd like to meet Jesus in person, but it's not the Jesus of the scriptures. It's not the Jesus of the gospel. They want to meet the nice guy who has some nice things to say about morality and was fun to be around and snubbed his nose at the religious authorities. That's the guy they want to be around. They don't want the wild, feral, dangerous Jesus, but that's the Jesus of the gospels. The gospels don't give us any third option, but to go forward and say, my Lord and my God, or to draw back and pick up a stone and try to attack. May God so inspire our hearts. May the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts in such a way that we would be born again and that we would be enabled to see Jesus as who he, as who he is. We know that we can't do that through our own strength. We know we need the grace of God poured into our hearts to follow Jesus as Lord and confess him as Lord. May that grace be given to us. May we bow down at his feet and accept him as our Lord and Savior. May we know him. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.